I invite you to join with me in prayer. Lord, all over the world this day, there are hearts and voices lifted in prayer to you for the safety of our sisters and brothers, our kinfolk in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. God, as we speak and hear a word this morning, be with all of those who seek your presence, that the words of all our mouths and the meditations in all our hearts may be acceptable to you, you who are our strength and our song and our salvation. Amen. So Rick read from chapter 9 in Luke, and if you'd looked a little earlier in chapter, Luke, in chapter 9, you would see that Jesus has been busy. Here's a thumbnail sketch of what he was doing in just the previous 27 verses of chapter 9. He gave his 12 disciples power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim God's realm and to heal. His teachings and healings put him on Herod's radar, and not in a good way. He listened to the disciples' reports when they came back from their mission. He healed more crowds who followed him. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He asked his disciples what the crowds were saying about him and who they thought he was, and when he asked the disciples the same thing, who they said he was, Peter answered, you are the Messiah of God. Rather than celebrating that pronouncement, Jesus told them to keep quiet about it and then predicted his own suffering and death and resurrection. And Jesus told his disciples in no uncertain terms that those who would follow him must take up their own cross daily and that those who want to save their lives would lose them. But those who would lose their lives for Jesus' sake would save them. And that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. All of the Gospels show Jesus as someone who did not have any time to lose. Feeding, healing, teaching, seeing people where they were, Jesus gave life away and brought new possibilities to life everywhere he went. He did not let any moss grow under his feet. And he didn't sugarcoat what was in store for those who chose to follow him. He knew it would be a rough road ahead for them, and he told them so. Even though the disciples didn't really get it at the time, Jesus both showed them and told them that following him meant losing their lives, though in the big picture, it would come to mean their saving. It was just about a week after he had said that to them for the first time, in fact, that Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter and James and John, up with him on a mountain to pray. And that's where we find them at the beginning of the passage that Rick read for us. It's a turning point in the gospel. After Jesus had done so much early groundwork with his disciples, 
and then heard the word Messiah spoken out loud for the first time. He has this shining moment on the mountaintop. But when he comes back down, he and the disciples face confrontation after confrontation, and the journey toward his suffering and death in Jerusalem becomes inevitable. But this moment on the mountainside provides a glimpse of something beyond that suffering. And so I want us to walk back up that mountain together this morning and see what Jesus does there that makes it possible for him and for us to head back into the inevitable valleys with healing and with hope. And to be sure, there are valleys galore where healing is needed more than ever. The brutal attacks on Ukraine this week have highlighted again all our global vulnerabilities and the obscene destruction of war. That elected officials in our own government are divided in their response to this, some even justifying and, justifying and praising the attacks, is stark indication of the work we have to do within our own borders. And though the U.S.'s daily COVID death total is significantly less than it was a year ago, and coming down from its high, its most recent high, earlier this month, we still have the highest death toll of any country on Earth. And in this era, where both information and vaccines are available more than ever before, U.S. COVID deaths are higher than those for the 1918 flu by almost a third. Windows are opening and there's progress being made for sure, but we are not out of this valley yet, not by a long shot. And then there are families being criminalized for caring appropriately for their transgender and non-binary children. And generations of racial inequity are evident as soon as we walk out these doors. There is so much yet to be done everywhere before we emerge from this long, low valley of isolation and fear and hurt and grief. And so let's be honest about this. It is exhausting keeping our spirits up in the midst of so much uncertainty. Even when we have roofs over our head and aren't hearing the sounds of explosions in our neighborhoods. We've been getting by, most of us, but sometimes just on fumes. When I came into the office the other day, some of our wonderful angel workers, Linda Powell and Marianne Rossiter, were clearing out cupboards. And Linda pulled me aside and she said, I have a great sermon title for you. I said, okay. She said, out of gas. Could that apply to you? And then she told me about something that had happened earlier that morning when a woman and her two children in their car had just made it into the church parking lot but they weren't moving. Out of gas, the woman said. And then our staff and our angels got to work, bringing them inside to get them warm and to figure out how to help them fill up enough to get where they needed to be. Shared resources, teamwork, compassion, grace, all of those were part of filling up that woman's tank so she could keep going.
shared resources, teamwork, compassion, grace. Those aren't a bad starting place for filling our own tanks, too. And we've seen so much of it here of late. Those were also some of the gifts that Jesus shared with others whose own tanks were empty. But where did he go to fill up his own? Luke tells us Jesus took some of his closest friends and went up a mountain to pray. More than in any of the other Gospels, Luke depicts Jesus taking deliberate time to pray, especially at critical junctures. So here, following the acknowledgement of his messiahship and impending passion, and before he walks into the full reality of what that will mean, he sets aside intentional time for prayer to immerse himself in God's presence. Though I've long been aware that prayer is one of Jesus' defining characteristics in Luke's gospel, I only really noticed this past week that prayer is the defining characteristic of Jesus' transfiguration story, too. It is prayer alone that brings about his shining transfiguration. Yes, Moses and Eliza show up, but if you read carefully, they're talking to him. Same with the disciples. Peter gets very chatty about making booths, even though he and the other disciples are still sleepy and clueless. But nowhere does it say Jesus responds. The cloud that envelops Jesus, Moses, and Elijah comes of its own bidding. And the voice that commands the disciples to listen to the beloved one is clearly not from Jesus. Truly. All that Jesus does to become radiant with light, to shine with the glory of God, to be transfigured before the disciples so that his divinity is as clear as his humanity, is pray. Receiving Moses and Elijah who embody the ancient wisdom of the law and the prophets is part of his prayer. Acknowledging without criticism or judgment the sleepiness of his friends, and the narrowness of their focus is part of his prayer. Losing himself in what one medieval author called the cloud of unknowing is part of his prayer. Prayer connects Jesus to his source, his history, his strength, his relationships, and his fullest self. Everything he has done up to this point and everything he will do from there are outworkings of his being centered in prayer, his time spent immersed in God's glorious presence. His transfiguration reminds his witnesses that Jesus shines with belovedness because of his being and his doing flows out from there, not the other way around. God's love isn't given or withheld, dependent upon whatever Jesus does. God's love simply is the essence of Jesus' being, and he is refreshed and renewed in that being through prayer. In my heart of hearts, I know that to be true for all of us, too. It's what we're reminded of whenever we baptize an infant, 
God doesn't love us because of anything we do or don't do, but because of who God is and who we are to God. And just as it was for Jesus, the way that is provided for us to remember, reconnect, and be recharged in who we are is through prayer, basking in God's presence, listening for ancient wisdom, losing ourselves in the glorious cloud of unknowing so that we may be known fully by God. Contrary to popular opinion and eons of cultural practice, we are not who we are because of what we do. God followers and Jesus disciples especially, believe it or not. Rather, we do what we do because of who and whose we are, beloved of God. And prayer is primarily about remembering that truth. I will tell you, that's hard to sit with. To pronounce that belovedness over a tender infant, even if they're screaming their head off, is one of the highlights of ministry. But to believe it for oneself is another thing altogether. Even when we say we would believe it, actually living that truth is hard. We are so used to tying our sense of self to what we are able to do. And any of you who have been laid up for weeks because of illness or injury or surgery, how long did it take for that feeling of helplessness to work its way into your soul so that you began to feel that you'd lost your whole sense of self or self-worth? One of the long effects of COVID that doesn't get talked about much is the feeling of helplessness that so many of us have experienced and the guilt that comes with not having been able to do anything to relieve the suffering of so many. And it doesn't help when we've heard things like, you can't serve from your sofa, you can't have a community of faith from your sofa, as though anyone who can't move from their sofa in body and soul is automatically discounted from the body of Christ as though prayer itself isn't service, as though phone calls to your loved ones or your senators isn't vital to a community of faith. Yes, we have much to do. And as members of Christ's body, we are called to live as Jesus did, as healers, teachers, reconcilers, bringers of good news to places of ache and emptiness, people who feed and touch others to bring wholeness. And we do that. We have done that. We are continuing to do that in myriad ways. We have been busy. Here's a thumbnail sketch of what we've been doing in just the past 27 days. We've gathered a team of preachers to take us into the summer. We have welcomed a new office administrator. We've returned to a full schedule of chancel and bell choir practices and added guest instrumentalists to our worship on a regular basis. We have decided on a path forward for new pastoral leadership. We've begun the process of selecting a search committee. We, many of you, have emptied cupboards, cleared out closets, swept hallways, washed all the pews, 
wiped down every chair, recycled old boxes, organized supplies, and prepared for disbursement of no longer needed items. We've gathered a group of previous moderators, going back 30 years, to provide ideas, support, and sustainability for our current moderator team and those to come. We've continued groundwork in the community for the building of the Children's Nature Playscape. We've completed a six-week staff training on critical communication processes. We've provided haven and help through the Deacons Fund multiple times each week. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It is exhilarating to see such energy, such progress, and such hope. It feels amazing to begin lifting the veil of fear that has prohibited so many of our activities for so long, to be doing all that work of Jesus in the world again. But friends, all this busyness is exhausting. I know some of us are running on fumes, and that gas meter is getting pretty low. If we're shining, it's probably from sweat, trying to do so many things at once. As we get back to our familiar roles as Christ's hands and feet, arms and legs, exercising all those moving parts after such long and forced stillness. But bodies need sustenance. Engines need fuel, and souls that give and give and give need replenishing. Jesus found his replenishing in prayer. Not just prayer for others, as important as that is, but in receptive prayer, listening prayer. Prayers of waiting to see what inspiration from the past would appear to guide his steps in the present. Prayers of remembering deep within himself the voice that called him beloved. Prayer that filled him from within to become radiant with the glory of God, shining in the fullness of his divinity and humanity both. In order for us to do all that we need to do as part of the body of Christ in the world, and not just out of our own acculturated need to keep busy, we need to start by remembering who and whose we are. And the way that is given for us to do that is prayer. Intentionally staying still and quiet enough to immerse ourselves in God's presence and to be refilled with God's light. Transfiguration Sunday comes at a turning point in the church calendar year as the last Sunday of Epiphany and just before we begin the season of Lent. Jesus' transfiguration is the pinnacle of the season of God's revealing and the invitation into a new season of reflection. It is a mountaintop experience to prepare us for the valley ahead. And there is work enough for us to do to keep us busy for ages. But being the body of Christ is not about being busy. It is about being whole. All that Jesus does in the way of healing, 
teaching, seeing, and giving life comes first from the wholeness he finds in prayer, from his immersion in God's presence, in remembering his connection to the source of all that is. That's what makes him shine in the essence of his being. May all that we do come from that place of connection and wholeness too. Friends, let us pray fervently for the needs of the world and for clarity about what, how to respond to those needs. Let us pray for one another and for our community and for our church and for its leaders in this time of transition. Let us pray that the right person to be our next pastor is already sensing a yearning and a call to be part of a church with so much heart and with so many hands ready to do the work of ministry here in Kalamazoo. But above all, let us be in prayer that we may be filled with God's grace and that all that we do from there may be a shining reminder of God's glorious presence. Remember who you are, friends, and shine on. Amen.